yeah, that's right. The important people are here. Um, okay. Uh, how many people play role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> Whatever. Like with a die and a pencil and a piece of paper. What are the rest of you doing here? <laughs> are you here by force? If, if so, you can talk to me. You can. Uh, anyway. Uh, okay. It's cool. Have a seat, everybody. All right. My name's Luke. Um, I make. Great. Um, I, we, I, in the next 60 minutes, we're going to put you to sleep. Uh, uh, I, I make role-playing games because I don't know why. Uh, I don't like uh, Burning Wheel or Mouse Guard. Yes, they do not make. They don't play role-playing games. You're like, we're on a panel. Um, uh, <laughs> you're like, I thought this was the Skyrim panel. Uh, so, yeah, not going to talk about Skyrim. So, anyone else? <laughs> okay. Alright, cool. So yeah, I make role-playing games like Burning Wheel and Mouse Guard. These are my lovely games. Can I give you your applause? Um, my name is Adam. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Sage Kobold Productions and co-author of Dungeon World. Which is... I feel like you're an applause when you're here. Uh, yeah, that's my jam. Uh, hi, I'm Tor. I edit Luke's games, uh, and I'm also the designer. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I'm also the designer of Torchbearer. Yes. Uh, all right. So we have posted this really provocative panel on uh, Penny Arcade's website. We're like, we're going to talk about modernizing fantasy RPGs, and they're like, cool. We're like, God, we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> No, totally not true. We're going to say, hopefully, really crazy, provocative things about role-playing games. You're going to be like, no, you're wrong. Uh, so we're, but we're going to take you um, on a trip through time. We're going to get into our uh, TARDIS, our RPG TARDIS, and go back <laughs> to a different timeline. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the history of RPGs uh, and the kind of this, both the games that were published and the style of the games. Uh, we'll walk you forward a little bit, and then we're going to... Uh, talk about what has changed internally in these games, uh, like their systems and uh, the, the mechanics and whatnot, and uh, hopefully we will all be enlightened. Um, so, so there you go, let's get started. Alright, so a long time ago, in the 60s, there were these dudes in Wisconsin and shit uh, that read a lot of uh, pulp novels and uh, played a lot of war games. And it's it's amazing, if you go back and read this material, if you read Fuchs Lieber or Jack Vance or uh, you know uh, the, the Conan stuff, uh, how much of it is reflected in our hobby and how steeped our hobby is in this this pulp obsession. Yeah, there, there are concepts in this old stuff that, that a bit like reading Lord of the Rings after having seen the movies, you know, you'll, you'll feel a bit like it's being ripped off. There's concepts like alignment, uh, magic items taken wholesale from these books and planted into D&D. And it, it really instills this sense that, that nothing is new, that everything comes from somewhere else. Uh, comic books should also be up there, especially Doctor Strange, was a big influence. Yeah, so uh, if you haven't read these books, it's interesting. Um, I've read too many of them, uh, and they are less interesting. Uh, so, this... <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Looking good, Bilbo. Alright. So, I mean, I, I don't really need to say anything. You guys clearly get it, and for that, I love you. But, so that's Ralph, for those of you who don't know, that's Ralph Bakshi's uh, The Hobbit, uh, a really cool rotoscope, rotoscoped animated feature that is nothing like Tokyo's book, really, except for this one scene. And that's Peter Jackson's uh, The Hobbit, where, you know, uh, Bilbo finds the ring. The thing I love about this comparison is the exact same scenes, same shot. I'm sure Jackson is referencing the Bakshi material here. Uh, it's too close not to be. But look at how much grimmer and darker our fantasy has got uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Yeah, there's, there's no way that the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins would be a thing that anyone would make. <laughs> like, it just wouldn't survive. But then, the concept of this like chubby, innocent little Englishman as the hero was a big deal. So, yeah, changes. Uh, Speaking yeah. of which. So this, so that is the, so the original uh, edition of Dungeons Dragons, we'll talk about in a second, came in a box, a box with fake wood grain, and then, which they bought wholesale, uh, and then they stuck stickers onto these boxes. That, that is a, they taped on remnants of uh, one of those stickers that said, hey, this is Dungeons Dragons. Uh, and it's got, you know, you get three books in there. And then you can see they're really high quality art. They, they've got some top flight illustrators. Uh, uh, and it's not that there wasn't great, you know, uh, sci-fi artists or fantasy artists at the time, but just the, the, the role-playing game, like sophistication of role-playing games hadn't quite come up to that level yet. And so this is brand new material for fifth edition. And it's just, we just think of ourselves very differently now as heroes. But I'll say this, that character in that left-hand image is much more likely to survive a dragon attack than the character in the right hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that dude is fucked, but, <laughs> but he's probably got like 40 feet, and like the GM's probably going, I can't believe he kills a dragon in one shot. Another dragon. With great marketing comes great hit points. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, other things have changed in our, our conception of fantasy as we have modernized. So uh, this is The Outlaw of Gore by John Norman. If you would like to vomit a lot in your novel, <laughs> you should read these novels. Yeah, please, um, please do not take this slide as an indication you should read this book or anything yes, else like it. Just, just, just wiki it and it'll be enough to make you <laughs> nauseous. Uh, but it just... But really, what I really like about this, I'm going to use a big word. I like the semiotics of the, the, the images, where you have the, in John Norman's fantasy world in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, you, you, know, you have muscly gore standing there over the, the chained supine, but yet a mysteriously aroused woman, uh, and, uh, and the, the dark. The Dark Other, and then with, with Brienne of Tarth, I mean, I, I know this is insane, I'm calling Game of Thrones progressive, but <laughs> just, it's, they're, they're a direct inversion of one another, these images, and it's important to our conception of fantasy. Yeah, generally in this early stuff, you see that women have sort of two purposes, either to serve or to ensorcellate, so if it's not one, it's the other, and we're starting to lose that. Yeah, yeah, that's why I avoid them in isolation. It's <laughs> a real word. Don't, don't edit Adam. <laughs> You're not his editor. That's one of my <laughs> all right. So, all right, so just to back up and talk about uh, this is what was in that wood grain, fake wood grain box with the white sticker on it. Uh, these three little books, 1974. Look at that guy's mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have many mustaches in fantasy anymore. 
What's happened to us? <laughs> it's a long fall. Request uh, is bringing them back. And, and this is actually not the character sheet for that edition. Please don't kill me. Um, actually, this is basic D&D. &D. Yeah. Uh, uh, it might even be Holmes. I don't know. <laughs> what is it? Copyright 1980? Um, so this, this is actually a character sheet from six years later, but uh, it's essentially the same information. Uh, and this is, uh, right, we get, you get everything that you need to play a role-playing game here, right? Hit points, armor class. What else would you need? Yeah, same for right? Done. Fully featured human being right there. Yeah. <laughs> Hopes and dreams. Yeah. Ooh. Some special abilities there. We can't read from the bottom. Hell. <laughs> um, yeah. Wait, right. So now we all play that game for the past thirty or forty years. It's uh, Thanks forty for years later. Forty years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that you should have edited. Um, <laughs> I guess that was his fault now. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if any of you don't have an editor, it is the best thing in the world because you totally just can blame them when you make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, no. It, uh, it turns out that we were not all satisfied with the white box in D&D, and there, as soon as it came out, there was this instantaneous chemical reaction, this collective foaming at the mouth of all gamers who touched it. They were like, oh my god. Um, and they started to make their own games. Chivalry <laughs> uh, and Sorcery uh, was one of the first reactions to D&D. Um, and it's important here that we talk about our mandate for this panel. You may, some of you may be thinking, but Luke, Traveler. Uh, and I would say, but yes, you're right. We're not going to talk about sci-fi. We're not going to talk about weird horror and stuff like that. We're going to focus on fancy games just in order to keep this uh, under four hours. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so yeah, chivalry and sorcery. Uh, it, it, realism was the first reaction, like, but DD is realistic! That happened in like 1974 and a half. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like nearly instantaneously. Uh, and then, uh, but, but things rapidly, four years later, people played a hell of a lot of DD and things started to change. Okay. And here, you really see the starting point for something awesome. Uh, in RuneQuest, there are no classes, no levels. You have skills, but in order to advance those skills and open up certain new skills, you need to interact with the setting. You need to join organizations, and you need to participate in them through the game. Right? So setting and rules are coming together. So yeah, with, with RuneQuest, and it's kind of a given in, in modern RPGs that setting and mechanics go together, and that you buy a, a rule set and you buy a setting to put it in. But in earlier versions of, of fantasy role-playing games, prior to RuneQuest, setting was uh, a dungeon. Um, I'm an elf, what, do you, what else, I got 10 hit points? What do you need to know? <laughs> so Rune, RuneQuest flipped that on its, uh, on its ear and started introducing a, a world for those adventurers to participate in. Also, and, how freaking cool is that cover? Yeah, it's like a Bayou tapestry with lizards. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I really dig about RuneQuest um, and, and just even knowing about RuneQuest, I, I'm not, Tor's our RuneQuest expert for this one, I'm not, I have never played RuneQuest. Uh, RuneQuest is definitely the birth of a, a, a lot of stuff um, going forward, um, but uh, when you talk, this is the best thing about RuneQuest, is when your friend comes up to you and says, I've, I, I designed a new role-playing game, it's amazing, classless, levelless, it, look, we're gonna get rid of all that stuff. And you're like, dude, 1978, man. Like, like not, not an innovation, bro. Um, so, 
uh, one of the next big evolutionary steps uh, in uh, modernizing our, our fantasy world, and, and so we're, I'm, I'm, we're, we're straying just across the line to talk about vampire, but you gotta talk about it, it's so important. It's a nuclear bomb dropped on the hobby of black cloth and white makeup. <laughs> I love vampire, I'm not making fun of you. If you love vampire, I'm with you. Um, like how you said that like vampire was in the room. I'm sorry, Mark, where I'm at. <laughs> feel like I'm chicken on your fun. I'm not, totally not. I'm right there with you. Uh, so yeah, Ars Magia. Um, this is, so this is the, that next point where the, the people have played lots of D&D, played RuneQuest, and, uh, and they said, you know what, it's not enough. We need to put it all back in the blender and make dough out of it. I don't think you make dough in a blender. <laughs> you should. It's too glutinous. You should. Good metaphor. <laughs> So I, I use I use vampire as my example of and and like we said you can have fun playing vampire but it's my example of a, a bad game uh, and not because it wasn't well written or because it wasn't thought out but because a game its setting proposes a, a promise to the players vampire says if you play this game you will get to be a brooding creature of the night with weird powers uh, locked in political drama with your friends but really vampire is a superhero game. Like, if you look at the rules, if, you, if you've played a vampire before, most sessions turn out to be fistfights in, in capes. And it's not, again, it's not that it's a bad game, and they were taking a, a huge leap forward in terms of setting and embracing setting, but it starts this, this premise that mechanisms of the game, of the, the way that you play at the table, and the setting have to be tied together. But if you take one thing away from this slide, this is the evolution of RuneQuest. Right, this is uh, mechanics, setting, coming together uh, in whole new ways. Right. But in order to really to be honest, and in order to actually be able to talk about these things, uh, it, we have to talk about this next game. So we got to back up, actually. In order to, be, to really understand how and why we are, we need to talk about a game you, most of you probably have never heard of. Uh, so, this, this, so this game is probably why I made this uh, panel aside from shameless self-promotion. Um, so it, this, in my mind, this is the first modern role-playing game. Yeah, Pendragon is the shit. Uh, well, yes. Uh, Adam and I say the same things using different words. Uh, <laughs> translating. What Luke means here? That's right. Uh, yes, uh, I'll be speaking in American and Adam's being Canadian vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so Pendragon, uh, so this is Greg Stafford, this is, uh, this comes out of the RuneQuest Rune tradition, this comes out of uh, experimenting with setting in Call of Cthulhu and the sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu, uh, it comes out of that, uh, but it, it, uh, it does something that I don't think any, any role-playing game had done, at least not well to this point, but Chivalry and Sorcery said realism, Greg Stafford said, Fuck realism, you're a knight in King Arthur's court. What does realism have to do with this? But that's it. That's I mean you're right. you're either a lord or a lady in the court. And that's it. Pen Pendragon can be alienating to audiences used to modern toolbox role-playing games because it says, no, you can't be a half-dragon necro-alchemist. You're a knight <laughs> or a different kind of knight. <laughs> or a lady. Yes, or a lady knight. Like it's it's about one thing, and it's very laser focused. And like Luke says, it's the beginning of a very different breed of fantasy role playing game. Right, and I think our thesis is that if there's one thing that defines a modern role playing game, this is it. 
that it is laser focused. Um, it no longer has to be one game that is all things to all people. Um, we don't have to play one game forever. Um, we're going to make a particular game to deliver a very specific experience. Yeah. And just to, to so, go ahead. I was just to say, Pendragon is really fun too because it's the only role playing game I've ever played where you get to make chastity rolls. <laughs> <laughs> I fail mine on purpose. <laughs> So, oh god, and now I forgot what I was going to say. All right, yeah. Just so, make sex so, jokes till you remember. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the Canadian vulgar. Who <laughs> fails his cruelty test So, uh, if you, if Pendragon's worth reading, it's totally worth playing. And, right, what I was going to say is, it's called Pendragon, not because that's a cool word, or... I like dragons and pens, or <laughs> because like King Arthur and those and Uther or whatever were cool dudes. No, because you're playing that story. You're you're playing the the Miss uh, Avalon. You're you know you're you're playing King Arthur Pendragon's story. You're knights in his court. You're not King Arthur Pendragon. You will never be. And the game says that like you're going to be part of his round table. And um, it's such a mind blowing concept. Like what? What do you mean I can't kill Uther and become the king? <laughs> Uh, no, no, his son's gonna be the king. Uh, and uh, so just like that, that limitation, it, it seems, I mean, when you talk about it, it seems like, why would I wanna play that game? It's so much fun. Um, I got to rescue Excalibur in this game. I had this really profound moment where Uther dies, and Ex I was like, like Tor, where's Excalibur? And he's like, oh, he's, it's right there. And I realized, I knew this, I had this revelation just before this that I couldn't be part of that part of the story where I couldn't claim to be king or anything like that. And I, so I'm sitting there thinking, like he, he you know, he passed on to another player and I'm like, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And I said, oh. And I took Excalibur, I said, can I, can I get it? He said, yeah, sure. And I gave it to the lady of the lake. I went to the lake and tossed it to her. And I felt so awesome. <laughs> If you'd like to hear Luke tell you about his other characters, come to our video. Because <laughs> I heard this one time he played this awesome wizard and... Oh, <laughs> 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 Alright, uh, so now we're going to talk about Adam. Uh, <laughs> so, so, kind of, uh, in that tradition going forward, we're going to jump ahead in time a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll, don't worry, we'll jump back too. Uh, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to talk about uh, three games we feel like are important heirs to that tradition. Uh, Tori, you want to talk about the sorcerer a little bit? Sure. So, in 1999, things are changing. Um, uh, our friend Ron starts putting on sorcerer, he starts working on it. And this game um, pulls back from all those mechanics. Uh, no, no longer six stats. Uh, it's all about dysfunctional relationships. Right. Uh, Ron, Ron went back to White Wolf and said, oh, this is cool, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, so he went to Champions and he was like, oh, this is laborious. Like, you know, because, right, it's a superhero game. You go, well, maybe we can just play superheroes. Like, oh, that doesn't work either. And he said, well, what makes the setting tick? Like, what makes people do bad things? And he made rules to make you do bad things. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Uh, so yeah, really important milestone in the hobby. Do you want to add that one? You got okay. it. All right. 
Uh, another game. Um, <laughs> that was not a complete sentence. <laughs> uh, so, one of the things we did in Burning Wheel, we feel like was a, a, a shift in ground uh, in gaming, was that we refocused on what we call player priorities. Basically, the game is not about the, the meta plot, it's not about the, the GM story, it's not about the module, it's about the stuff that you guys care about challenged. Right? If you say that these things are important to me, your manners are important to you, your holdings, your knighthood, your like all the Pendragon stuff, Burning Wheel says, great, now fight for it, because it's going to get taken away. Uh, you're not going to be a, a, a kind of uh, walking through the story like you are in King Arthur Pendragon. You're going to be uh, working to keep a hold of everything that you care about. And it was just, it's a, it seems self-evident, but the, in Burning Wheel we really uh, reward uh, play. Uh, we, you know, there are rules for it very well. It's not something that you have to attack onto a game. We're going forward. Okay. So yeah. Uh, all right. And then, uh, then there's this game. So, <laughs> so, so Dungeon World. Uh, this is the 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 impetus for creating Dungeon World was about taking that experience of of playing D and D. But not as it was written in the rules, but as you remember it from being 12 in your mom's basement. Like, it's about emulation of the intended goal of the original games. So while it might on the surface look like it's doing similar stuff, we've come so far from that period that now it's about creating a feeling at the table. Um, and something that's really important to, to Dungeon World and kind of comes off of what Luke was saying about Burning Wheel is that that player input, that people are starting to really realize that if you want a successful game, it can't just be that the GM brings their pre-prepared plot to the table and everybody follows along. You can have fun doing that, but that we've, we've evolved. The technology has advanced from there. And so the, the underlying pieces in games like Dungeon World and Apocalypse World uh, on which it's based uh, are there to, to push that narrative forward with input from all the players at the table. Rock and roll. Uh, all right. So. So I promised we would go back and, and cover the, the missing decade. The dark times. Uh, does anybody remember the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to raise your hand for that one. You don't need So yeah, so um, I, I kind of feel like ni the 90s are a lost decade for fantasy. Uh, <laughs> so there are... There are great games published in the 90s, great role-playing games. I mean, obviously, Sorcerer is 1999, uh, but I feel like that's part of the, the uh, 2000s, really, decade-wise, the long 2000 decade. Uh, and there are, like, Unknown Armies, uh, uh, so, you know, another notable game. Uh, there's other games that are outside of our remit for this panel. But as far as uh, fantasy goes, you get Splatbooks, and then um, you have these bonkers, like, crazy, I've been working on this for 20 years, treatises on role-playing like Cinnabar, which, as an artifact, is amazing. As a game, it's not so hard. Um, but uh, this is this also, though, the Cinnabar, Tor and I were talking about this, and we think Cinnabar is a, is a product not just of, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years of basement gameplay, uh, but of a technological evolution uh, outside of gaming. So in the late 90s, um, we have a revolution in desktop publishing. All of a sudden, it's easy for that guy that's been in his basement working on his game for the past 30 years um, to put that together on his own PC um, and uh, bring that to a printer and get it published. Right. 
You want to go on that? So, I, don't, I don't remember the 90s. I was like 10 in 93. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, well, I'll sit you down and tell you about it sometime. Um, I'm going to tell you about Bush and Creed and... <laughs> Publishing wasn't a thing in role-playing games. It's always been very DIY. I mean, Gary and friends, uh, obviously, like they were, you know, hand-pasting those uh, stickers on those boxes. Uh, it just the ease of it was much better. Like, there's a reason why Steve Jackson's early games, you know, in the late '70s, were these tiny little pamphlets and baggies because that was the easy thing to do. Like, because you had to cut it up physically and lay it out and have it reproduced like that. Same thing, like James Ernest, cheap-ass games, like that, there's a reason that they were like that. It's a reason for production. Like that was the cheap and easy way to go. Uh, and, but as desktop publishing becomes more and more prevalent, as we all have a, you know, a, a Mac or PC, um, you can make 400-page tomes that contain 100-item um, lists of materials. Sunstone bazookas. Sunstone bazookas, yeah. Well, and it, it makes you wonder what D&D would have been like if Gary and Dave had InDesign and Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet they would have failed. They would have like, God, this hard is yeah, what is this garbage? <laughs> 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 all right, cool, we're doing all right. Um, so uh, we're gonna talk a little bit um, more in depth about what we feel like uh, comprises of a modern fantasy RPG. So uh, you may hear us nerd out about chaos versus conflict revolution. Um, what does that mean? What, so, yeah, what, what does task versus conflict resolution mean? One of you, two. Editor. Uh, so, <laughs> task resolution, I think we're, we're all familiar with, right? Um, you want to do something, you roll the dice, and then the GM tells you what happens. Now, it may or may not be what you wanted to have happen, um, depending on your success. But, you know, you, you've done the thing, you've picked the lock, you, you've done whatever. Uh, with Conflict resolution, we put forward a different idea. Right? You're going to tell the GM what your intent is, right? what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so when you succeed or fail, uh, when you succeed, you get what you were after. Right? You can't twist that so that you succeeded but you actually failed. Um, yeah, so you know, uh, an example from play might be a, a sneaky character is attempting to pick a lock. And in one instance, it would be that the task is to pick the lock, and that's all that matters, right, is the, the goal at hand. Whereas with a conflict resolution system, the task is to gain, the, the intent is to gain entrance into the next room or to get whatever is in the box. So you Before have more, yeah, so you have a little bit more freedom around failure. With, with a task-based system, if you fail, all that's happened is you failed. With a conflict system, there's some more play there, and you can see that in a lot of uh, a lot of modern RPGs that it's leaning that direction. For instance, maybe you get into that office that you're trying to get into, you pick the lock, uh, but the guards catch you in the act. Right, and uh, you can see in some of the early evocations of task versus conflict resolution, uh, you can actually see them bubbling up in Greg Stafford's mind in Pendragon. They're not quite fully formed there. Uh, you can really see them in Ron Edwards' uh, Sorcerer, and then this is this. Illustration is James West's, uh, James B. West's uh, The Pool uh, is a, a, a free game, searchable, tiny, weird composition. Uh, so another attribute that uh, we ascribe to modern games is the comprehensive system, right? Something that is, is more than the traditional, like make a character, here are the rules for combat, uh, here are the rules for magic, figure everything else out. Right, this is, this is the re-narrowing of the funnel, like where D&D &D was about one or two things, 
And as games matured, they became about more and more and more things. So you ended up with a system like GURPS, where it's like, where it's about everything. So we have to have a rule and a system for every conceivable thing. And games are starting to funnel back down now, where you can create comprehensive systems for games because the game scope is so much less broad. It's narrowed down and focused on one thing. So you can be really good rules for that one thing. And so, it's a little bit small, but uh, if you can see the in a wicked age sheet here, um, you can see uh, the sort of evolution of what was going on in Pendragon. Uh, in Pendragon, it doesn't really care so much about how good you are at doing something, it cares about why. Uh, and in a wicked age, that's all it cares about. So, you know, one of the stats is with love or with violence, um, right? So, that's, uh, that's what it cares about, not how good you are with the sword. Right, and in, in this game is by uh, Vincent Baker, uh, it's called In Wicked Age, and it is uh, it ironically designed to emulate uh, kind of dark pulp fantasy, uh, but right, it's not skill-based or task-based in any way, right? It's how you do something. Are you doing it with love? Are you doing it with violence? And so, I mean, this game could feasibly do everything, um, but it's going to color any game that you play with it, um, because it's going to force you to, to act in a particular way. Uh, right, so this is, this is something that I adore. Uh, procedure. I, the, we, it has taken us 40 years to figure out how to tell you how to play a role-playing game. Uh, role-playing games are notoriously bad at telling you how to play them. They just say, here's rules for character creation. Uh, yeah, here's some rules for a skill, you roll it. And um, cool, I hope you have friends. Have fun. <laughs> they're almost targeted, right? I mean, you need, uh, you need someone to show you how to play. Uh, because if you're working from the text, it's really hard. And, you know, in the, especially in the, the 90s, you see a lot of books start to clue into this, but not fully. Where And you, if you read Dungeon World, which you should, uh, you'll see that, that I hate GM advice. I think it's, it's useless garbage that the GM needs rules, just like all the other players, and there aren't a lot of games that say, this is how you GM, not, this is how maybe you should GM, but you're a GM, you know what you do. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's just, it's hard to write procedures for this stuff. There's, role-playing games are so beautiful and dynamic and expansive, and we want to say yes to everything, and sometimes that's not our best instinct, but uh, it, it's very difficult to quantify what is happening at the table and say, Oh, okay, this has happened for this reason because you did this, 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 and then saying, okay, well, I don't really want the game to go in that direction, so I need to just adjust the procedures for the game and, and write it in over here. It's really fucking hard to do. Um, you guys are all creative motherfuckers. Uh, and, and you're all looking for, well, it doesn't say this. Uh, and sometimes that's okay, sometimes it's not. Well, actually, one of my current favorite procedural games is the uh, 1980 version of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's the, it's, the first time D&D actually tells you how to play. Maybe the last time, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, called, it's often known as the Red Book or the Moldway Edition. The, it, well, it's not perfect, it's probably like 80 or 90% there. With a really clear procedure, let, tells you how to play the game, tells you what everyone's expectations are, it says, kind of hugs you on the shoulder like this and says, and you're gonna die, probably a lot, but it's okay, you can just make a new character. <laughs> the reason why that's even possible for that early edition of D&D is that it is about one thing. It's about going into a dungeon and coming out with treasure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go to town. Yeah, you can't even go to, go to just, town, adventure in town. Game says there are no rules for it, don't do it, which is awesome. Uh, no, I'm serious, it's a, it's a focused game and that's okay. Uh, basically, town is, a, is the equipment sheet. Like, here, let's get back to the good stuff. Let's go back to the dungeon. Um, and it, what's really interesting is that, you know, when, when Gary and Dave and company had their fucking brainstorm for this crazy game, which didn't come out of nowhere, but, I mean, they put it all together, 
they couldn't tell you how to play it. They're just like, there's a dragon, and you can cast a spell, <laughs> and maybe you have skip points, maybe you have armor class, I don't know. Um, I mean, that said, if you came out of the wargaming roots, you understood the context, right. but you could decipher it. Right, so it took them six years of writing and rewriting those rules just to be able to say, okay, if you're gonna go in a dungeon, just do this. <laughs> I, that's, that's pretty amazing. All right. Player agency. What does that mean? Is this a place that you go uh, to get hired as a player? If your GM is being a shit, you go to the player agency. <laughs> <laughs> They'll send the fun police. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> God, the fun police are rough. <laughs> you want to talk about this? Uh, yeah, so player agency. We covered it a little bit earlier where this is about how, you know, you're moving away from that D&D idea where the characters are essentially just pawns on the imaginary board. That if you lose Bob, you can roll up Bob too and he's gonna be just about the same. It'll be fine. <laughs> that it's more about the, the players solving problems and the characters are a vessel. But as games are moving on, we're seeing player agency where you have a character and you can imbue them with more than just hit points and saving throws. That they mean something to you. And they're the way that you interact with the, the fictional world you're all creating together. And so they count, they matter. And there are games with mechanisms that support that. And this, this term is actually somewhat misleading because it's not just about players, it's about GMs too. Um, the, the idea is that this is a conversation between players and GMs, and you need to talk to each other. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I should have said that, you're right. I, I, am a, I am a dirty communist anarchist, and I believe that a game master is just another player. A game master is a player with a special set of rules. Uh, and if you want to fight me about that later, I mean, let's go. Um, <laughs> uh, but, so, the, um, but some really interesting things emerge once you start talking about the fact that, hey, you as a player and what you want matters to the game, right? Suddenly, suddenly the, the rules have to change a little bit and you've got to talk about that stuff and you have to talk about each other as people and not just as a, that's what my character would do. That's, no, no, there's no one else here but you and me. <laughs> that piece of paper is not talking to me. It's um, tangentially related to that. There's, a, there's an essay in, I think, the Vampire Player's Guide called the Nuremberg Defense of Gaming that, that <laughs> picks apart that. Well, it's what my character would do. Really? Yeah, That's it's awesome. fantastic. Yeah, so the, the thing is that people are recognizing that now, that it's not, you don't need that defense because everyone at the table cares what your character would do. <laughs> Yeah, very few games address players as people. Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of sad, because that's the only people who play games are people. <laughs> I don't, wow. Wait a minute. Yeah, that was a little deep. Yeah, existential crisis. So, all right, and so here, here now we get into this, this horrible, fetid word, the N-word, um, <laughs> narrative. And you hear this word thrown around all the time. When we role-playing games, you create stories together. It's a collective narrative thing. Um, but uh, but it, as a concept, it is really important. Like, what is a story in a role-playing game? So I'll, I'll just point out one thing first. Uh, if you if you take one thing away from this whole panel, right? There's Greg Stafford's name again. We cannot get away from this guy. <laughs> uh, Super influential. So this is the, uh, the next set of role-playing in Glorantha. It, uh, this is the evolution of RuneQuest again. Now, RuneQuest, RuneQuest still exists, uh, but now Greg um, and Robin Laws uh, are trying to figure out how to take that idea of distilling setting into rules and getting rid of some of the, um, ah, some of the, the mechanics that, that we don't need um, and just focusing on that interface. 
Right? So this is all about how your characters interface with the culture of Marantha. And everything is about that. Everything is about your tribe, your, your clan, your community. Um, and those, in fact, are stats in this game. Right, and how, so how many of you would say that, and you know, I played role-playing games, I don't want to hear from the rest of you. Uh, <laughs> how, how many of you would say when you, a session, a single, a, a one, uh, one quantum of play is a good story that you would play? One of your sessions was a good story. Just one how, about, how about the last session you played was a good story? Nope, nope. Yeah, look at that, right? Yeah. So, like trying to, to build that into, into a game and trying to interweave that, and so the game has a richness and a narrative in every single quantum of play, it's hard. There's, there's some, I don't know where it came from, and it would, it would require some research, I think, but there's, there's this mythology in gameplay that the only campaign worth playing is the one you play for two years with the same character in the same world and the same GM, and if anyone leaves, you've ruined the whole game. <laughs> and so, that's, that's something we're trying to get away from, that, that like, I, I mean, I'm a bad example because I'm in that game right now. <laughs> But I think normal human beings probably don't have that much time, and that we're, we're all busy. Luke and I have been playing the same campaign for 10 years. Okay, well, so ignore us. <laughs> Do as I said, no, but it's true. Like, normal the, human beings. Yeah, non-game non designers, all right? We'll, we'll go to there. I, I actually, I just think that's such bullshit. I think we like ongoing stories. I mean, just look at, I, like, look at the HBO shows that we like. Like, you know, the sci-fi shows are, we love these continuing episodic narratives, like, we're addicted to them. And role-playing games can do that so fucking well. Do you, do you like the movies, Luke? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so not, not every game has to be an HBO series, though, if you can swing it, go for it. Fuck you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point, sir. It, it segues to the next slide. So we, let's just let's just zoom out a little bit and like okay oh nerdy role playing game theory stuff oh boring um, so let, let's actually kind of look left and right around us and look at our culture and how our perceptions of selves have continued to change uh, where you know we've gone from a pulp as inspiration for these games and from Tolkien uh, and Lieber and Warcock in, into um, the cinema is so much more influential on uh, our uh, fantasy perceptions uh, of ourselves, and the cinema, you know, as I pointed out with the Game of Thrones and uh, and the Lord of the Rings stuff, it's just gorier and dirtier uh, than it was um, uh, thirty or forty years ago. I mean, this was Ivanhoe's big hit around the time, uh, influential on Gary Gygax uh, producing uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Braveheart, I mean, influential on everyone. I think that circuit was longer this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably was. Um, so yeah, just it, like it's, there's just this continuing churn, and role-playing games are so referential. Like they're like very few role-playing games are sui generis, right? And very few of them come from the you know the author internally and without influence. Most role-playing games are emulative, right? Where you are drawing on these you know um, uh, these sources and putting them in your mixer blender thing. And make uh, a bread, churning them up, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and you know, you're creating. Well, in, in this game, you can create like in Burning Wheel, you're saying like you create stories like Game of Thrones or like uh, you know, high end Lord of the Rings stuff, um, and like that kind of like that that mixture of, of pop culture gets influenced by what gets thrown in the mix. All right, deeper and darker, I think, from here, right? All right, so 
Uh, there's a couple, we feel like we've touched on this a little bit and we just want to address it formally, uh, that you know, fantasy also kind of has a bad rap. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it has been seen as puerile, it has been seen as uh, dumb, and it's done some dumb shit. Uh, it, you know, I, I'm not an apologist for fantasy. Uh, Tolkien's a racist bastard. H.P. Lovecraft's a racist bastard. Like, uh, am I making excuses for it? Um, sorry. Uh, pin drop. Uh, but, like, we're, we're not here anymore. Holy crap. Right? We like, this isn't a real, it's a real Dungeons and Dragons module. Yeah, this is the 80s. So, does anyone remember the 80s? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> It was a dark time for the Rebel Alliance. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Yes, softballed it in there. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. This is Adam Cole who said, what, what did he say? There's no phone call that I don't end with uh, boring conversation anyway that doesn't just cheer me right up, right? What do you, what do you say? You hang up the phone and fuck you. Boring conversation anyway. See, what I was telling you it was a conversation, now you're pandering. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is a sick burn, dude. Sorry. <laughs> Just, yeah, okay, I'm a Star Wars nerd. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're not, like, it's, it makes me so happy that while we still have problems, we're not this anymore. Like, we are actually trying to get better. Um, not perfect. Not super. And, you know, we are also, like, this is a way uh, Reynolds piece for Pathfinder. Uh, like, we're doing some soul searching, uh, you know, as far as uh, gender goes too. Gender and, and obviously race plays a part in this, and that's fucking great. I would I would love to see a Gorian slave master tangle with this lady. <laughs> <laughs> so just saying, like, we're we're working on it. We're, we're, it's cool that we're airing our dirty laundry, and we're uh, you know we're we're trying to to drag ourselves into the present day. Um, so, all right, uh, but, but, but also we can't talk about modernizing fantasy RPGs without acknowledging that we are, there's a, for any of you who know, we're currently obsessed with the past, uh, the OSR movement, you wanna? Yeah, so the, the OSR is uh, the, the old school renaissance, uh, and it's about sort of going back to those, those original games. A lot of it is based around that early version of D&D that we were talking about, and it comes from the idea that a focused game doesn't have to be new, that we can look back in time and see these games that, that worked the way they were written, that you don't have to keep recreating the same mold. Um, and because of the way that uh, Wizards has published some of their mechanics, because they're open gaming license, there's a whole bunch of these games that are uh, clones of earlier versions of D&D, and that work really well with slight tweaks from game to game to change the flavor of the game, to modify some of the mechanics, and to patch some of the holes that are still there from the 80s. So, I, I actually blame the 90s for this, uh, in a way. Um, but, the, what, don't I? Um, but, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of, like, implosion of the idea, I mean, he essentially died and was reborn in the 90s, and it kind of fucked everybody up. Uh, but the, 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 there's been such a beautiful creative ferment, uh, and, and kind of this opening of our doors in the last decade, as far as role-playing games, and I mean, I don't know if you guys remember how bad it used to be when you couldn't talk to other people that you played role-playing games. I run three, three uh, D&D campaigns in my office now. I have, like, 15 to 18 people playing D&D with me any, uh, at any one time, and they are not all 40-year-old gentlemen. Um, <laughs> like, uh, we were, you know, it's a really big age range. Um, 
you know, and it's equal, equally divided uh, men and women. And uh, like, there, there's just been this great embracing of the hobby in the past decade, saying like, hey, you know, D&D's cool. It's not the only game. It's not the only way to play. But this is great, and let's keep doing it. Let's you know, let's keep having fun with it. I think that's cool. And then there, you know, there are other games that have been spawned out of that. These are new uh, uh, versions. Uh, like 13 Cage, it takes D&D uh, 3.0 and 401 mixes them out with Trail as an OSR uh, Western. Um, and then other uh, other games in that tradition, uh, you know, of obviously the Torture of Dungeon World, uh, but uh, Numenera, um, Robin was Hilfo, Monster Hearts, uh, good stuff like that. So there, you know, there's been this kind of explosion of love. Have any of those were Kickstarter? <laughs> uh, many. So, so one of the things that uh, we want to end on before we take some questions from you guys. So just in, in that mode, so we talk about modernizing fantasy RPGs, and like Adam said, like those some of those old games are great and they're very playable and they're really cool. Uh, that said, it's been four years of really intense play and design uh, in the hobby, and we've got better at this. We have developed new technology uh, to address. Uh, how things are played. We've, developed, we've innovated. Uh, uh, you know, not, not just us, but all you know, our, our friends and peers and colleagues have created these amazing games. Really thoughtful texts uh, that um, change the way you play games, and, uh, change the way you play role-playing games, change the way you play games in general. Yeah, the, the pure amount of, of post-release playtest hours on Dungeons and Dragons is staggering, and it's it's no wonder it's been patched so many times. <laughs> that said, you know, you offer up a, a game of basic D and I'm throwing my dice down immediately. Right, totally cool. So, yeah, we're, um, it's not. So it's not that the new is better than the old necessarily, but you know, we, we've been working really hard on this for a really long time. And if we didn't get better at it, like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> all right. So thank you, Paul. Uh, If you have questions, go for it. Can, can we get question mic? Question mic. Question mic. Also run. <laughs> uh, let, let's, let's give the, the runners. We're at, we're at booth 509. Yeah, I know you're running over there right now to buy our games. Torchbearer, Dungeon Row. Torchbearer, Dungeon Row. What they don't know is that there's a fire trap coming down the hallway. <laughs> right into the gelatinous cubes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good. good. Alright, All right, let's rock and roll. What do you want to go, left or right? Let's go somewhere. Okay. You always take the left hand. Yeah. All right, um, so over the past 30, 40 years that you guys have said, uh, the interesting thing is that video games and role-playing games have had a bit of a cyclical nature in terms of taking mechanics from one to the other. How do you see that, that continuing? Like, do you see that continuing to happen? Do you think they're going to branch off a little bit more? How do you think that's influencing the I, I think we're going to continue to learn from each other. Uh, and it's not just video games and, and role-playing games, right? It's board games, too. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of what we've learned about writing procedural rules comes from board games. Um, 
So I, I think that um, just like there is an interplay with um, cinema and uh, novels, short stories, um, we're going to continue to take inspiration from from games, and I think uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people that we know in the tabletop world are in the video game world as well. So. I think I think if you look at uh, look at indie, the popularity of indie computer games, um, the, there's a bit of a, an old school renaissance going on there too, where there are really successful games with like one really strong mechanic. They're going back to the the asteroids era, but with modern design and uh, modern, especially modern distribution channels, which gives a, a lot bigger reach. Uh, and I'm going to say a crazy thing here. Uh, our, at, at this point, the, with the, especially the ABRPG, small press RPG scene uh, in the last decade, uh, we, we may have been slipping, but our technology for play is so far advanced from any uh, electronic RPG at the moment. Like there's a ton that they can learn to us, learn from us, um, and I and I know that they will. I know they'll keep trying to draw inspiration, and, and there'll be a, you know, a dialogue of design between the the two. Cool. All right, thank you over here. Okay, so uh, I'm a uh, board game and role playing game designer. Uh, I'm part of an organization called the Game Makers Guild that meets here in the Boston area. Uh, we do primarily board games. We have about 400 members. Uh, but starting next month, we're about to start doing RPG uh, playtest meetups. Thanks. And uh, any of you are welcome to join. Uh, but my question is, uh, what advice do you have for organizing large playtests of RPGs and running them to get the most out of them? Oh, man, uh, give, give your game away. Like, for, for Dungeon World, we got a ton of playtests because we licensed the game Creative Commons and we're like, look, just please make it good, and gave it to as many people as we could. It takes time, uh, it takes a lot of effort, and learning to do uh, focused playtests, like with an RPG it can be hard because people are always clamoring for some new thing, you'll give it to them, they'll say, oh, it was fun, it was good. But having a group or groups that you can rely on to adhere to the rules as they're written uh, is a lot harder in a role-playing game than it is in a board game. So having more people, just like giving it away, getting it out there, more people will give you higher results. You kind of want to go for a cast the wide net approach. But I will also say that playtesting should be a, a two-phase process, right? So start with your internal playtesting with people you know, um, who, you know, and make sure that you can create a game that you enjoy playing and that delivers results consistently. And once you have that, um, and you, you've created the game, you've playtested the game, now it's time to take your text right, and deliver that out to the, your outside playtesters. Uh, and then, you know, you, you may catch errors in the game, but it's more about playtesting the text and making sure that you've communicated your game properly so that people understand how to play it. Any advice on getting it out apart from story game uh, forum and social media? Seriously, get all up on Twitter. Google Plus is full of nerds. It's true. Uh, also, you should be playing. Your, if you're making games and you're not going to game conventions and grabbing people to play your games, then. Like you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, you got to play play games with people to you know convince them. Reading games sucks. Uh, all right, we're good. Yeah. Okay. So, ah, Mike is way too tall. <laughs> okay. Um, so you guys talked a little bit about the art changing throughout the games, and do you think that as the art world grows and changes, particularly the illustration fields, and you think you're going to that even the indie RPG scene is going to be more influenced by the very stereotypical um, 
for lack of a better term, cookie cutter art, um, video game art that tends to permeate a lot of the um, tabletop role-playing games as well, or do you think that the artwork might move in a more diverse style and whether that's better for the game world or if it's um, something that should, like that it needs to be the same to continue to draw the crowd that's used to it in? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, so as small press and, and indie folk, we have the privilege ourselves of having no marketing manager telling us like, you know, this is what tests well in Illinois. Yeah, I'm sorry, women in this game are off-brand. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's always going to be big AAA people with highly paid, uh, well, relatively speaking, tabletop role-playing is not a big market, but there's always going to be people with art directors that are aiming for that mass market appeal. And like Luke said, we have the freedom as indie designers not to have to go that route. And hopefully the more we're able to do that, the more fans our games get, the more that affects the, the bottom line of those bigger companies. Right, and there is, um, if you're involved in some of the online communities, uh, like G Plus or RPG Net or Story Games or something like that, there is this incredible soul searching going on right now in our community. And it's painful to be a part of it, it's painful to watch, but basically saying that, hey, you know, sometimes the stuff we do isn't always the best for everyone who likes our games, and sometimes we need to be uh, a little more cognizant of that, be a little more inclusive, uh, a little more representative, and it's great. It's it's really uh, it's amazing to watch, and it's great to be a part of. So I, I think uh, on the indie front, we have the privilege of having really smart people talking about our cities, being like, "Dude, be smarter, uh, be smarter," and that's which I, I really value and honor that input. Um, and I think that I think that like you know, it's like punk rock, like. A lot of games that get released in our scenes set the tempo for uh, you know what's happening uh, out there. Like I don't know if any of you guys work for Wizards or whatever, but uh, last year or two years ago, Wizards their art director did a like a, a blog post about trying to make the art in the game more inclusive, more representative. It was amazing. I mean, it wasn't perfect, um, but the fan community reacted very badly to it in every possible way on all fronts. So like there's. We have to learn to be gracious as we go through these growing things and learning to kind of stop being mouth-breathing troglodytes. Um, but uh, uh, we're, we're, we're working on it. It's, it's happening. Does that answer your question? I think so. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, all right. Back over here. So you mentioned Vampire earlier in the presentation. I was wondering if you had thought to Whitewolf's other actual fantasy game, Zelda, Opinions. Uh, it's rad. <laughs> uh, well, I ex we left Exalted off because it's definitely, it is, it is fantasy, um, it is more anime-influenced fantasy, uh, just, it just, it feels like, to me, Exalted feels like it just draws from a different tradition than uh, kind of swords and sorcery and pulp and whatnot. It's, it's a much more modern fantasy game. I really, I really like reading my Exalted books, um, but the bar to entry for play is so high because the mechanisms don't have anything to do with the setting, really. Like, it, it should be more like Glorantha, uh, in that the, the mechanisms of the game should be tied better to the, the setting. It still suffers from the same sort of white wolf itis that they had before. That being said, it's probably my favorite white wolf game. But again, like, the, it's, a bar, it's a bar to entry thing, for sure. And honestly, I just don't know it well enough to speak intelligently about it. I can't read my books, so I'm more interested in it. Sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, well, um, for starters, uh, minor 
complaint, got a third grade. Um, you showed an image, you said it was from the Ralph Pike, she wanted the rings, it was actually from the Oh, what are you asking? Same guys as Thundercats and the old Rudolph claymation monster. Sorry, sorry, I knew that, I knew that. I don't tire of You're a wild hammer historian. Right, I had a nerd punch at the Takan, I have to. No, please, please, thank you, I appreciate that. You're great, too. My actual related question, partly on the subject of Mount Green and Carbonates, a constant problem I've had with various roles. It's like Fat Vader. Um, <laughs> constant, constant problem, uh, especially with trying to introduce new people to RPGs, uh, at least for me, uh, and I've even like started to slide into that trap, is total GM control. Uh, really big problem in D&D. Um, a problem that really can't be rectified with some of the more complicated systems because you need somebody who knows all the rules and the one guy who's going to know all the rules in a game like, say, moving out of fantasy, like Shadowrun or Rifts, where it gets way complicated and user-unfriendly fast. Uh, and it puts a lot of power in the hands of the GM. And I find that it's really hard to get the people involved when you've got things like you know, killer GMs who want to kill off the party and they feel like that's an accomplishment, where they're basically gods that consider themselves players. Have you considered, as far as the evolution goes, straying farther away from GM control and treating them more like a fellow player since they seem to want to do that often anyway? Have you played Fiasco? I have not played Fiasco. Does it do that? It makes everybody the GM. Okay, that's, that's something uh, that I, I would very much look into. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to replace Pathfinder for, for, for that group, right? Like, if that's the kind of game that your, your folks are, are jamming on, it's not going to be a replacement. But it's a good experience that puts everybody on a, a level playing field. And there's lots of games like that. Microscope does the same thing. Okay. Um, and, and just as a thought experiment for your group, it's a, a nice diversion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just as far as our games go, like, we love the role of the Game Master, the Dungeon Master. We really believe in that, that position that you know, is being important in, uh, in, in our type of role-playing games. But we, again, we write rules like those powers that, that um, GM gets are written in the rules. They're not just assumptions that you're dragging from other games. Like, mm -hmm. this is like you have a, a series of duties uh, as the, the game master uh, in our games. And we feel like that kind of takes some of the burden of responsibility off. You're just saying, well, I'm just playing the game with you. And this, is, this is my job while playing the game. Right. That said, I mean, a, a game's rules can shape uh, a group's interpersonal dynamics, mm -hmm. uh, but they cannot fix uh, you know, someone who, who is, uh, who's acting in bad faith, right? who's, being, um, who's being a jerk. Uh, that, that is outside the remit of the rules. That, that, that is you know, the, the interpersonal relationships that, that are at the table. Yeah, sometimes you got to talk about that stuff. And, but just to talk a little bit uh, about like, that power dynamic in fantasy games, just specifically. I'm going to tell you about my game, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry, guys. <laughs> anyway, it's, just some, it's something that, like, the, 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 there's, a, there's a gulf of power between players and GM in, in traditional D&D, &D and, and that style of game. And for me, um, what I really try to roll and the perspective that I try to take on is that I am totally on the player's side. I am absolutely rooting for the players. I want them to be successful, right? I cheer on every tiny victory that they have. On the other hand, it is my job to not tell them any secrets, right? Not to, to be objective, to roll the damage die in front of them and be like, 
that's a seven, you're dead. Um, right? Like, the, and so it's this weird, like, fine line, but to, 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 to basically say, hey, we're all playing this game, this is the game, these are the rules of the game that I have to go by, which are a lot of them involve killing you, um, but I really hope you make it. Uh, and and trying to try and take away, like, I, I find, like, my worst moments in D&D are when I'm, like, behind the screen going, why didn't you left, go left, go left, go left, go left, go left, go left, and it's when I am emotionally invested in the decision that the players are making, rather than just saying like, hey, yeah, cool, awesome, you went right, let's all die at the hands of the hobgoblins. <laughs> there was a, one of fireballs down that corner, or death over here. Uh, and it like just, I mean, that's a, that's a somewhat good example. Actually, it happened. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just like, I, I just try to not invest myself in that way in the game. Okay. Um... That, that helps a fair bit. That actually answers a lot of my question. The other, um, there was one thing. Well, we actually have very little time. Do you mind if we, we take another question? Uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're happy to talk after. Are we, are we, are we done? We're fine? Oh, all right. Yeah, we'll talk after, but yeah, okay. Hey, Chuck Polaris, the rotating commission. Uh, so, I love Dungeon World. Best D&D yet. Um, my question, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the really short form games, like Ghost Echo or Big Crab. Truckers, is it? Mother truckers? Uh, <laughs> do you see, what do you think is the, the minimum amount that an RPG can get to? Because those are just like one or two page games. I think a role playing game needs as many rules as it needs to be a good game, right? Like it really varies. There's, there's a lot of games that, like if, if a game is written to be an express experiment and how few rules that it can have, it may not be the best game that it can be. Like a game should be, however long it needs to be to, to succeed. I mean, that, that being said, not every game needs 300 or 400 pages. We're a bad group to ask, because both our games are really But that long. said, if you like Vincent's games, I mean, he put out Sundered Age, which uh, is written on two sides of a business card, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can I plug my Jurassic Central Park, the uh, chicken wing eating based mechanic game about dinosaurs in New York City? You just did. Yeah, I think you just did. Oh, gosh. No, no, you can't. Oh. <laughs> Uh, you talked on connecting mechanics with setting quite a bit, and uh, like Dungeon World and Burning Wheel, they both have a setting that's pretty deeply tied with mechanics themselves, are pretty generic overall. Uh, like, for instance, you know, you're burning up higher, which is very setting specific, and mouse guard and stuff like that. Uh, how important would you say it overall? I mean, I guess you guys are all kind of biased, you do do the the setting specific, but uh, how important is it to tie the setting together with it as opposed to making a comprehensive rule set that's universal? So I don't, I don't think that universal games, even though they claim to be, actually are. Uh, if you look at Fate, like Fate says it right out the gate, though, you can play just about any setting that you like using Fate, but the characters have to be like this. They're a certain type of person. Um, so I, I think it's false to presume that there is such a thing as a good generic role-playing game. And like, uh, our, our, one of our design tenets is that uh, the rules are the setting. Everything else, all the things that are written on the paper and the margins, and, the, and this city has 186,000 people, and you know, it's the biggest city in the fantasy world. That's great. Fantastic. That does not help me run this game. That doesn't do anything for me. I mean, okay, I don't have to think of a name for this city. 
Um, no one cares what the population is. I don't know how much is 186,000 people. Is that a big city, a little city? Um, it's an enormous little city. Uh, but, but if you look, like, if you look at our, our game, so we have a sci-fi version of one of our games, uh, Burning Empires, and uh, the fantasy version of Burning Wheel. Like, is it just the same rules with like swords and lasers? Look at the rules for sword fighting in the two games, right? The rules for sword fighting in Burning Wheel are super intense. Right, super, super intense, and often in a sword fight, you don't really want a sword. You're like, oh, I wish I had a pole axe now. <laughs> it would, this sword fight would be way easier if I could just pole axe you. In <laughs> um, Burning Empires, a sword is almost like an accoutrement. It's like you know, it's something that you might get to use once in a while. And when you get to use it, you're probably going to chop somebody in half because it's a space sword. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that goes to show that uh, even outside of a genre, like the, the intent of the tone of the game should change the mechanics. Like a, a knife fight in a game that's supposed to be like Dune is very different than a knife fight in a game about street crime, right? Like even if it's the same goal, the same the same conflict, what it's actually about and what place it takes in the general scope of the mechanics is going to be different. So I mean, to go, it sounds to me like to go back to your original question, it's very important. <laughs> yeah, your, your rules are the same always. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we, that Vampire Drive is crazy too, is because why are there rules for flamethrowers and machine guns and tanks? A vampire. Like, what's going on? You don't remember the end of Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> oh, alright. Oh, Renfield driving the tank. He's going to have one day, room to write up the cast of that. Cool, alright, we're going to take another question. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, I was curious to get your reaction on uh, your mechanics that encourage uh, narrative play. Um, have you read what comments or feedback you have on the uh, Star Wars Age of the Empire narrative dice system? I've been using that for a while. Yeah. yeah. I, I really, I really like it. Yeah. Um, and I think just because it's it's part of a, an arc, and I think that Fantasy Flight's next game that isn't Star Wars or, or Warhammer is gonna be even better because they're they're funneling this process down, they're doing some cool things that the rest of us haven't really thought about. And plus, they're a board game company, so they can make wicked custom dice and crazy stand-ups. And I think that, that as far as how the dice rolls affect the, the narrative, like the funny dice are useful, but not, you know, a six and a star shape are the same thing, right? But I think they're going in the right direction, and that it's cool to see such a mainstream property and a, a big license do some like weird narrative stuff. And you're starting to see more and more of that. You know, D&D uh, &D Next has some, some kind of funky, hippie mechanics in it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's gonna keep happening, right? That, that they're, gonna, they're gonna be piecemeal at first, and give it another 10 or 15 years, and Fantasy Flight will be releasing like a weird storyboard game with custom cards. 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that guy kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but uh, you how dare you? It was so neat. Uh, when, you're, when you're kind of in the beginning, right, you're kind of mixing your ingredients, throwing that blender thing that we were painfully talking about before. Blender mixer. The blender mixer thing. When you've got, you've got narrative on one side, you've got game mechanics on the other side, and you really have a really short vision, say, for narrative, and you're having trouble making it work game mechanic-wise, like, how do, you, how do you decide what you're going to do? Um, one of the things that we do early on in our process is we, we take our setting materials and you know, take our, our narrative and we kind of we lay them out and we try to um, really kind of dissect them and say, okay, what's going on here? Why did this happen, right? Why does this elf get to battle this Balrog and win? Why does this elf 
battle the battle rock and lose. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, the, um, the mechanics like, can be used. Burning Wheel and Dungeon World both do. The mechanics can be used to imply things about the setting. So, in Dungeon World, uh, the elf might have a, a special ability where it's like you. Uh, when you parlay with a dwarf, uh, you, you always do it at a penalty. It's always harder for you. And so it's not flat out saying elves and dwarves were at war, but it's like it's there's point. tension there. And, yeah. and it's it's implied through the mechanic. It actually matters. It's on the character sheet. It changes the way you play the game as an elf or a dwarf and, and modifies the game. Right. And so that's the key, is just never forget, uh, if any of you are looking to design a game, that all your game rules are doing is modifying behavior of the people at the table. You're, you're uh, giving them a series of decisions to make and perhaps incentivizing one or penalizing another or, or just you know coloring the decision. And that's it. Like so if your players are making the wrong decision, like or I mean that's a terrible thing to say, but basically if they're making decisions that you don't like and you don't feel like should be part of your game, then you have to feel you have, you have to feel out a way to incentivize the you know the, the right, right decisions. decisions. Right. Um, right. I mean if, if basically if all your vampires, like if you sit down and play vampire and all the players look at each other and be like National Guard Armory, 10 minutes, great. Um, and they just, they just roll over there, uh, roll, roll over there, grab their uh, their um, tanks and you know, heavy machine guns, and then just roll around being like, blood points, blood points. Cop blood, I love cop blood. Like, then maybe you need to, to think about like how that game is like. Coming season from burning the Bruja Tank Commander 2000. <laughs> My character is X amount of strong, and Luke's character is Y amount of strong. We can, we can compare them. We have a, a space to analyze what those characters can do. Um, and so, if your game requires knowing how X or Y strong those characters are, then it, then it is important. It doesn't matter what the game is about. That's that's a part of it. But if it doesn't matter those things, or it's not important, if it's a game about like dating, you probably don't need to know how strong you are versus your date, right? Like. <laughs> One of, the, one of the other things that's super important, and we forget, because we're all so good at this, we played these games so, for so long and so well, and you know, look at the stats and they're just like, oh, why am I rolling this? Uh, but it's, abilities are handles for players. Like, it's, like if you're, when, when you look at those six stats at, with fresh eyes, you're looking at them and saying, oh, this is my character, this is who I am, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm bad at. Like, and it, that, like, that is the, that's the first box that you're drawing on the character. Indeed, like your stats are more important than your class. You're um, terribly important. <laughs> so you know, when you're playing a game, watch a player that's at a loss for what to do. Uh, what's the first thing that player does? Look at their sheet. Right. And they're they're looking for inspiration. And what that sheet tells them is, is what's going to, to key them. You know, it's the, the next thing that they're going to do. Um, so if you want it to be about fighting guys, right, strength is a great stat. Um, if you want it to uh, be a, a, about you know, the uh, uh, 
you know, how you're going to connect with, with your community and the people around you, then, you know, maybe that's not the right set for that. Yeah, your, your stats are your first piece of your setting. And, right, so having these kind of, like, statistical, like, census stats for every character doesn't make sense, but saying, like, hey, this is what's important to evoke about these characters in the game, super important, absolutely crucial. Yeah, if you want to see a game that uses stats in a, a traditional way, but names the stats differently, look at Apocalypse World. There's a stat there for cool and a stat for weird. <laughs> and they're all just as important as strength and dexterity and constitution are in D&D. Yeah, cool. Thank you all for sticking around for this.